Well, I think this is officially the first time I've been here uh, when our family has been a part of Sojourn Galleria. Most of you know that uh, I've made a transition from uh, vocational ministry out into the marketplace, and so that put us in a season of life where we're trying to figure out where do we, where do we go to church. Uh, it's not something that we, a decision we've had to make always that often, so it's weird to suddenly be thrust into it. Um, but the Lord has certainly made it clear to us that this is a, has been a good choice and a good place for us to land and uh, invest our time however long he keeps us here. And so it's uh, a special privilege for me to um, preach to us as one of us. Um, though one thing has not changed, and it's the fact that Taylor loves to ask me to preach the weird passages. <laughs> Without fail, Anytime he's asked me to preach and I open it up and I look at it and I go, I don't, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, and I, I, have, I have to mess with him about that simply because uh, I know my place, but it's also, uh, it's also an honor to me that he would not just trust, trust me to stand up here and say whatever's, whatever I'm gonna say, but he would trust me with those passages that it's not always quite that clear and it's not always obvious. And so it's, uh, it's a double honor for me to be here. Um, and yet, as I do, I would love to pray again real quick before we get into this. So if you would indulge me for a moment. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus that by your spirit, you are here with us. And I pray that you would pour your spirit out on us in that unique way so that the songs we sing, this word that, we look at and study together, Lord, that it wouldn't just be ink on a page. It wouldn't just be me, be me talking and sharing what I think, but God, that your spirit would really make your kingdom present. That you would speak to each of us as we look at what your word has to say. So we, we invite you, we receive you, we beg you to come. Please do not let this be just another spiritual exercise or presentation of religious goods and services, but that this would really be a true encounter with the living God by your Holy Spirit. So please, we beg you to come. Come and show us the way of resurrection. In the name of Jesus, amen. Another man I love died this week. If you didn't hear the news, uh, a writer and pastor by the name of Eugene Peterson passed away on a Monday. And I say another man because there have been a number of older men in my life that have taught me something specific and profound and life-giving that otherwise I had never heard. And even though this particular man, I never met him, I never knew him, I'd only read his books, and yet on countless occasions, his books saved my faith, saved my calling, and I owe a great deal to him. And one of the most profound lessons I learned from reading Eugene was that he saw resurrection not just as a promise for the end of our days, for the end of history, but that's something that is part of every moment of creation. That, and that what we're lacking, the reason we miss it so often is simply that we have undiscipled imaginations. 
that if we would simply learn to pay attention to even the smallest of details, we would see every moment, every speck, every leaf, every uh, disappointment even being filled with resurrection. And when we come to a chapter like this, it's, it would be easy, convenient even, for us to simply pass over it because, well, you know, when Paul writes these letters, he just kind of follows the convention of his day. And so this is just sort of wrapping up some small business, little details before he sends off this letter. But one of the things that struck me after that moment when Taylor asked, hey, would you preach this passage? And I go, sure, let me look at it and go, okay. What struck me is that to get to this point, we have to walk with Paul through so many different issues, so many different subjects. And the temptation is to read this letter as though it's just sort of bullet point after bullet point. Because Paul does regularly say, now concerning this and now concerning this. But when we read 1 Corinthians 16, not only have we had to make our way through a, a corrective about the Holy Spirit and what he does and what power really looks like among God's people, and not only do we have to walk through a challenging and yet hopeful exposition of what resurrection means and that without it, this whole thing's a big sham. Then we come to this. Then we come to these things that we could pass over as just small details about people that we'll never meet. Instead, what's happening is that Paul is showing us in this chapter what resurrection looks like in everyday life. Because just like there's a temptation for the Corinthian church to just think that the mark of spirituality, the mark of the Christian life is just how ecstatic, how expressive, how demonstrative can I get with the Spirit? How much of the bread and the wine can I consume? It's a spirituality measured by greed and indulgence. And that we can think about what, what does it look like when the Spirit is present. We can think about those things. Whatever our, our idea is, it's very much constrained to Sunday mornings or when the church gathered. And it's very much constrained to still even expressions or experience. And it's not that it's not those things, but just as the same spirit who gives speaking in tongues and dreams and visions and prophecies, he also gives people gifted with administration. Something that to me seems so lifeless and so boring and so terrible. And I'm sorry if you're very excited to get back to your spreadsheets tomorrow. I just, I'm not made for that. And I know it. And I'm grateful that there are. What I've recognized is that the spirit is just as much present. He is just as much at work in this moment as in all of the other daily decisions that we make. So that the resurrection may have happened on a Sunday, but it has continued every day since. So it's not just something that we come and celebrate today, it's something that will go with you tomorrow. No matter how tedious, no matter how monotonous, doesn't matter if it's the same thing you do every Monday. 
It doesn't matter if the person that you have to meet with is the same contentious person that you just cannot stand and you dread every Sunday night, the spirit is present. The resurrection is happening. And what we have for us this morning is a lesson in learning to recognize where the spirit's at work. Precisely in those places that we're tempted to overlook. Precisely in those ways that we're tempted not to think about. And so when we come into this part of the letter, remember that we have gotten to this point because we have already talked about the Spirit of God. We've already talked about the resurrection. And so when we're coming into these details, we need to bring that truth with us. And what we see when we get there, when we remember those truths that we're carrying with us all the way through this letter, is that we recognize first and foremost, starting in verse one, that the Spirit's work of resurrection makes us intentionally generous. Because look at Paul's language as he's talking about these details, not just a collection for the church and not just something that he has directed other churches to do, but there's uh, an element of uh, purposefulness to it. As Paul says in verse two, that on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there'll be no collecting when I come. And I think it's fair to say there's probably a couple reasons why Paul is saying this to the Corinthian church. Number one is that Corinth was well-known for having uh, golden-tongued preachers just come on through. They loved the, the, fl the flowery language. They loved speakers that could come in and make them feel something, even though they recognize what they're saying means nothing. It's why at the beginning of this letter, Paul says that I came to you with nothing but, the, uh, but preaching the gospel because he did not want them to confuse the transformation and the power of his words for just another skilled speaker. He needed them to understand that what he was talking about was nothing less than God himself. So he didn't, he didn't talk pretty when he came to Corinth because he knew they were used to being manipulated out of their money. And the second thing, as he talks about in other places, is that uh, generosity is something that God celebrates. And that generosity isn't measured by the amount that's given, but generosity is, is measured by how much it costs you, how much you sacrifice to meet somebody's need. And that doesn't have to be monetarily. Because where he goes from here is that he begins to talk about his desire to spend time with them, to be with them, to not just rush on through, that the, the generosity that Paul is not just teaching them about but wants to model for them is the generosity of our entire lives, that every part of us. And so Paul is willing to put off meeting with them because he wants to give more of himself to them. And we know from uh, the second letter and in other places where he writes that this meeting was not gonna be easy. And in fact, it was incredibly painful. And yet Paul still wanted to pour himself out for these people. His heart broke for them. Even though they accused him of terrible things and wanted to diminish his place in the kingdom of God and the work that God was calling him to do because there were these other guys that called themselves super apostles. And we, we know they're super apostles because look at how well they talk and how well they dress and how... Uh, 
how expressive they are. It's this great display. And yet Paul continues to call them back to the simple idea that the power of God present among us, that the reality of the resurrection, that it is first and foremost not seen in something demonstrative, something uh, exciting. It's not seen in the fireworks. It's seen in the simple, the humble, the ways that most of us overlook because we recognize that it comes with a cost. And whether that's a cost of our time or a cost of our money, that generosity is one of the greatest marks of the power of the Spirit and the reality of resurrection at work among us. And this was brought home to me maybe a week or two ago. As like a church, I'm in this place in my life where I'm really wanting to be open to the work of the Spirit and how God leads us throughout our days and not just having my own to-do list, but recognizing that God knows that there is work to be done and God knows that the work I'm now doing still fits into his kingdom, but also knowing that if I don't do that work, then other needs that families have, friends have, are gonna go unmet. And I trust that God knows all of this. And so one day I just thought, okay, Lord, like, you tell me what I need to do right now. And just as quick as that, the thought, Barnes and Noble comes into my mind, which I'm tempted to dismiss because I love Barnes and Noble. <laughs> and I could spend a lot of time looking at a lot of books that would feel very profitable to me, but I know uh, I've got plenty that have gone unread. I don't need to buy any more right now. But I thought, let's just see what happens. Lord, I'll just go. And so I went, and the, the, when I got there, it was pouring rain, and so I ended up sitting in my car for a while, working on some other things, and eventually I thought, okay, I'm just gonna go inside. And no sooner had I walked inside and sort of just kind of started walking in this direction back towards some of the tables, uh, I came across a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in a really long time. And he and I sit down, and we start talking, and I start hearing about what's going on in his life and sharing about what's going on in ours, uh, and I just happened to mention that, well, really, I'm here because I, I felt like the Lord told me to come here. And sooner rather than later, what comes out in the conversation was that he had been uh, thinking about an experience of leading a group of men through studying uh, a book on prayer and reading about it, and all of them recognizing, like, man, I feel like this, this guy keeps saying that prayer is a dialogue, but I feel like most of my prayer is a monologue. So if God speaks, like, how do I, what do I do with that? If he's still, am I missing it? And what he told me is that no sooner had he written in his journal, God, if you still speak, if I can still hear your voice, would you help me to know that? No sooner had he written that, that I walk around a bookcase and we saw each other and then began this conversation. And in that moment, when I, before I saw him, as I'm thinking through, God, why am I here? There's lots of other things that I need to do. You know, the, the pressures and the weight that are on me. In that moment, I realized too that even though God knows all of these things and yeah, after that, we, got, we got right on with the rest of the to-do list. But what, what that taught me in that moment is that God knows and cares about all of these details that I have to do throughout my work week 
and yet he is still calling me into the same kind of generosity of time and effort because that conversation, as I left it, I realized he really needed that conversation. But I really needed something too. I really needed to be reminded that uh, just because my job title is not pastor doesn't mean that I don't have something to give to a brother, that I don't have something to offer them, that there's not still ways that I can serve them. And this now has become an ongoing conversation for me and my friend as we want together to see God lead us and be at work in the work that we're doing. Because we know that the various things that we're doing are still very much of what God is doing in the world. So maybe if we learn to walk with him and and can sort of make our to-do list a little bit more tentative, that we can begin to live out this spirit-filled resurrection kind of generosity that's not just marked by dollars or a Sunday experience, but marks our entire lives. And Paul is quite clearly wanting to remind the church of that. But the other thing that he does, the other way that he shows us the way that the spirit is at work and the resurrection is happening on a Monday is that he calls the church, he reminds the church to receive diverse leadership. Because when we read through this, it ought to strike you that uh, from verses 10 through verse 18, he mentions three different key leaders. And again, the reason we know that this isn't just Paul tidying up business, that that this is in some way him showing us what the work of the Spirit looks like in the mundane. The, where, how we learn to recognize resurrection happening on a Monday is that he has talked about Timothy and Apollos countless times in this letter alone. He's already mentioned them. He's already talked about their ministry. He's already uh, instructed the Corinthians about what their ministry to them looks like in the context of Paul's ministry and how it fits into everything that God's doing. He's already been over that. So why bring it up again unless there is something else he wants to remind them? Because Timothy is quite different than Apollos. And both of them are praised for something different than what he praises Stephanus and these other men in verses 15 through 17. That each of them in their own way has embodied and led the people in Corinth. And yet they're very different. Apollos was known as this incredibly powerful preacher. A man that... uh, every time he is introduced in the scriptures, is described as someone who is mighty in the word. And that the only thing he lacked when he came on the scene was that he didn't fully understand what had happened because of Jesus. This was a man that could open his Bible, maybe didn't even need to open his Bible because he just knew it. And when he talked, it was powerful which was a wonderful gift, but it was also a real big problem because at the beginning of the letter, the church is divided over sort of their celebrity preacher of choice. Some of them are running hard after Apollos and they feel real proud because, man, I read all his books, I listen to all his podcasts. Others of them, though, it was Peter and still others, it was Paul and then the super spiritual bunch was saying, well, we follow Jesus And as a way to come back around, Paul is saying, listen, all of these men are good men, godly men, men that you should imitate, but they're not the same. And neither are you. 
Because there may be Apollos, this uh, confident, strong, authoritative teacher, but then there's Timothy. That every time Paul is talking about Timothy, he talks about him as one that he's so proud of, but he's so concerned about. Timothy is not the hard-driving, confident CEO type, and yet he is always put up as a model of leadership. It's not an accident that when Paul is writing to Timothy and he is talking about what sets apart a person for leadership, he says nothing about experience, about background, about credentials, all of the things we love, all of the things that even our churches obsess about and have convinced ourselves this is what will make an effective leader, whether it's parishes or churches or whatever. He says none of it. What does he say to Timothy? What kind of man are you, Timothy? That's what matters. Which is why it should not surprise us that in the midst of this list where Paul is talking about spirit-filled resurrection leadership, he says something that ought to come across a little strange, but I promise you it's not. Why does he say in verse 13, among, be watchful, among, stand firm in the faith. Why does he say, act like men? It would be strange a little bit uh, because the people hearing this aren't men. So it'd be weird for Paul to say to a bunch of women, act like men. And I don't think that's what he's saying. And I also don't think there's something necessarily more virtuous about a man over a woman. And one of the interesting things about this word that becomes translated, act like men, it could also legitimately be translated, have mature courage. And what Paul is getting at, when we are thinking about what does it look like to receive diverse leadership? What does it look like to kind of throw out the picture of what a good leader looks like and to let the scriptures tell us what leadership looks like among God's people. It comes down to that word. That in the Greek is one word. It's not a serious, it's one simple word that could be act like men and it could also be have mature courage. And I think that's at the heart of what Paul is saying to this church, what he's saying about these men, what he's saying to us is that what it looks like to have spirit-filled leadership, what it looks like to be a people walking in the resurrection of Christ, it means to follow those who have mature courage. And mature courage can show up in all kinds of ways. It doesn't have to be the loud, boisterous, crowd-gathering type, maybe like Apollos. It could be the quieter, more timid, and yet, person of tremendous character, like Timothy. It could be like Stephanus and the others who are praised, as Paul says in verse 18, for they refreshed my spirit. These were men who saw that Paul was concerned, that he was troubled, that he was uncertain. And so they ran to him at great danger to themselves. They found where he was and they went to him simply to encourage him. To be a leader among God's people, you don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be this uh, impossibly confident person who commands the room. 
You can be a teacher. But most importantly to Paul and most importantly to us, that you have that mature courage that shows up in people like Timothy, that you're a person of character, that you value the more important things, that when you see a brother and sister in need, you rush to try to encourage them. And sometimes encouragement simply means, I'm just gonna sit in this with you. I'm not gonna run away. And yet Paul gives us these three distinct pictures as both a reminder and a correction to us that most of our ideas of leadership aren't really that great, nor are they that healthy, or let's be honest, really that effective. I think we all know where the church is right now. And when, uh, when you can recognize that there's not much difference between the church and the world because of the popularity of particular hashtags, we recognize that we're in need of a correction. I think we're in great need of a correction in leadership especially. And to a return to really a recognition and embracing of a spirit-filled and resurrection type leadership that Paul is pointing out to us here. And lastly and finally, as Paul has laid out what the spirit at work in us looks like in making us intentionally generous and receiving diverse leadership, lastly and finally, that the Spirit's work of resurrection helps us to recognize that the churches around us are partners and not competitors. And this is something that happens everywhere, but I've experienced it uniquely in Houston, in places like the Bible Belt, that for all of our spirituality and all of our desire to worship God and all of our desire to know him and all of our desire to share the gospel with people around us, it's far more common that what actually happens is we divide over really small petty things. That we may have 99% of the faith in common, but we'll focus on that 1%. So we may be convinced in our reformed convictions, but we'll find that one church that maybe it's a little bit more less reformed, and we're like, those guys down the street, man. We'll find things to critique them about. Then at the end of the day, we have to wonder, who how much does that really matter? Are people coming to know Jesus there? Are people experiencing life change there? It doesn't matter if they do worship a different way. It doesn't matter if uh, they're located in a different place. It doesn't matter if they're okay with people driving from all ends of the world, otherwise known as the different corners of Houston. It doesn't matter. The real question, what really matters is are they focused on the kingdom of God? Do they care whether or not people die in their sins or they are extending every offer possible for people to know him? Are they, are they doing that? Do they believe in what's most essential? Then what's the problem? Obviously, they're different enough that we're different congregations, but besides that, man, who cares? And let me push in on one in particular. I know Reformed guys love to make their opinions about Joel Osteen known. And number one, I don't think he cares. And number two, I have been that person myself over the years until I started to meet people 
that told me story after story of friends and family and ultimately themselves. That even though God led them to other places since their time there, they met Jesus there. And what, what can I say about that? Just like there's a real temptation for us in this church that gathers in this space in the shadow of lots of big churches, lots of well-known churches, it's so easy. So easy for us to let that cynicism run its course, masquerading as spiritual maturity. Super easy. But let's be honest, most of that is actually jealousy. We're jealous that more people aren't showing up at our church like that. And so we find ways to sort of prop ourselves up. We find ways to tell ourselves that somehow we're better. But can I, can I offer something to you that I know this has been direct and blunt, but I, I, don't, I don't always know how else to say things. But let me offer this to you. There are men and women and children right now as we gather here, are gathering there. And as we speak, God is changing their heart. What is not to celebrate about that? What's not to love about that? What's not to thank God that maybe there's somebody right down the street from us who would never walk into this church because it's too small and they're, they're intimidated by that, but they'll walk into the, to that church. God can reach them there just as much as he can reach them here. And let's thank God for that. That whether we would get in a room with those leaders and whether it would be uh, pleasurable or not, the fact is we are partners in the work that God is doing. And we have the mind mindset of partnership and not competition. That is part of the way we begin to train our imaginations as Eugene taught me so many times. It's a way that we begin to recognize all of the ways God can be at work in powerful ways, in places we would convince ourselves he can't work there. He can't work with smoke and lasers and spinning globes. Of course he can. Of course he can. So Paul, in his own simple way, saying these churches from Asia, they greet you. This church that meets in the house, they greet you too. He's saying whether it's the small little church that's just a handful of people meeting on somebody's sofa, or it's this church that takes up an entire region. He's saying if you meet any of them, greet them with a kiss. Greet them in love. Greet them in brotherhood. That if being filled with the Spirit means anything, if walking in the power of resurrection means anything, it means this. It means not having that scarcity mindset that runs so many of our lives. It's a call, it's the power to be generous with everything we have. It's the power to recognize that God can use any man or woman who is committed to him to lead in some way in his kingdom. It's the recognition that as long as people are preaching Christ, in inviting others into the new life that he offers, then we're partners. We're all in this together. And so one of the things that uh, I love is that Taylor has committed to praying for these other churches. 
And both of us, we know where we both learned that because neither of us had seen it until we encountered it in a church that I think both of us could acknowledge at the time. We weren't sure we would, that was the kind of church we would work at or want to build. And yet they modeled for us this kingdom mindset. And that has been a challenge to me that I've never forgotten. Just like I've never forgotten something that G.K. Chesterton wrote, who was a, a British journalist who lived at the turn of the 20th century, when he's talking about the Christian faith and wrestling with his own move from atheism into Christianity, he talks a lot about, in his own poetic style, how he, he was so committed to trying to figure out the world that the mystery unnerved him until the day that he came to the recognition that uh, it's not the poets that go crazy, but the mathematicians. Because the mathematicians, as, as he says in his own style, the mathematicians want to cross the infinite sea. And the poets just want to swim in the depths. There's mystery to this Christian life. A mystery that the first person I ever encountered who helped me understand that was Eugene Peterson. And whether it's irony or providence, for him to full, really, I shouldn't say fully, but to take the next giant step towards resurrection, that it happened on a Monday. Because Monday, for the decades of his pastoral ministry, was his day of Sabbath. And so while you and I are still getting our small, tiny glimpse of resurrection tomorrow, Eugene got a real big taste of it last week. And so much of the mystery that he taught me to understand, he's now seeing face to face. So much of the mystery that he, like Paul, invites us into to not try to cross these mysteries like mathematicians because we're just gonna go crazy, we're just gonna get frustrated and we're just gonna throw it all out tomorrow. But to learn like the poet, to recognize there's more to be experienced here than understood. And I just want that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't ask us to figure everything out. And just like you told Moses, there are the things that I've made clear to you, those are for you and for your children and for every generation after you, but there are things that you cannot know, that you won't know, and those are mine. God, thank you that we don't have to bear the weight of untangling these great mysteries, but you make it so clear to us what is most essential and that even more than that, you, you pour yourself out to be with us, to be right here, to not just be with us, God, but in us. That all those who are brought into your family, God, we get to be filled with you so that you go with us everywhere we go. And as we step into our week tomorrow, we step into those things that we're tempted to believe this is not part of what God's doing. God cares, but he's a good dad, but like that's the only reason he cares. God, you're just as much with us on Monday morning as you are right now. God, give us the eyes to see that. Give us the ears to hear your voice as you are speaking to us in those conference rooms, 
as you are leading us in those team meetings. Make us sensitive to you so that we could really be, we could really live and experience the fact that we are resurrection people, not just in that day to come, but with every step along the way until that day. God, let us walk in your spirit and experience resurrection even in the most mundane of things. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thanks brother.